it's important. I'm glad you noted that. We're going to edit that out. <laughs> We're going to change that into like, I would like to note that, yeah, I mean, all the evidence points towards John Cardi is a murderer. <laughs> So, uh, hello, friends. We're back. We're at this very, very special episode of uh, Highlands Bunker. <laughs> we are still in the uh, shadow of Rockford Tower, in the belly of the beast, the Delaware Way. We're behind enemy lines, and uh, we got a nervous guy in the seat right now. He's very nervous, He's smiling from ear to ear, twitching. Uh, he writes under the byline of Xerxes Wilson because his name's Xerxes Wilson, but he's my friend. I call him Lex. Hello, Lex. Hi, Rob. Thank you for having me here. So, you've been covering, the, the, you covered the first Vaughn trial. You're preparing for the next wave of trials. Um, it's a very interesting topic because it weaves into a lot of other criminal justice things that are going on locally. Um, one, we'll just shout out because just coincidentally, it was a nice coincidence that Esteban Parra's story about uh, shipping inmates off to Camp Hill in Pennsylvania. It's probably not the best idea. Um, how uh, did, did you know a lot about that before it was published today? No, I mean, I had uh, obviously heard about the state's efforts to reduce its overtime that it pays correctional officers and try to get a handle on how many, you know, basically the administration of the major jails in the state. Um, I didn't know anything about Camp Hill, honestly, until Esteban wrote that. I didn't know Vermont had had trouble with them. Um, and it, it just, and it ties into what we're going to talk about today with Vaughn, um, because the state has been trying to get a handle on how it administers its prisons. And tied into that is how many prison guards it has and how many prisoners it has. Um, so they all, uh, they all flow together, but no, that was a, that was a, a useful public service today by uh, State Yeah, Epara. Shout out. If, if you folks missed it when it was published, go back and look at it. Uh, basically, the state of Vermont had struck, you know, a similar deal to move uh, overcrowded inmates to Pennsylvania, which is what Carney just did, what, six months ago? Less? Less than six, Less than six ago, months yeah. ago. Uh, but they started getting immediate complaints. And as time went on, uh, you know, middle-aged men were starting to just die. How many died? Four? There was more than that. Six, uh, maybe? Something like that. So they, they, had to, they had to, so they obviously stopped the contract. The, 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 the kicker is, and, and of course in an in a article just giving you context, but they, they just shipped them off to a private prison in Michigan, like a contract. You know, well, I think they sent some to Mississippi, which... Oh, Christ. That's something. A cool hand, Luke. I can, I can make that joke because I'm from Mississippi. but um. You are. I mean, <laughs> I wasn't, I, I wasn't going to make fun of your, uh, your, your, your roots until a little bit later, but, I mean, we, we can go there now if you want. Well, let me, uh, I guess, since we're kind of on the topic, let me give you a little bit of prologue to how, I don't know, how this all ties into the Vaughn right. So, Delaware, little old Delaware, incarcerates somewhere around 5,000, more than 5,000, 5,500 of its citizens. Um, it's about 750 people per 100,000 residents, which is about the 18th highest rate in the state. Um, 
national average is about 700. Uh, and in that population, so Delaware is low 20s percent African American, just the general population. More than 50% of our jail population is black. Um, take what you want from that. Uh, there are four primary prisons in Delaware. By the way, Lex is uh, restrained by professional ethics to tell you what you should take from that, but I'll make some commentary later. <laughs> I'm not here for the commentary. I'm just I'm here the, to, uh, this is, there's a wall between us. There's okay. an editorial wall between us. I'm here to set the table. Um, Delaware has four primary prisons. The one we're going to talk about a lot today is James T. Vaughn near Smyrna. Um, it has a capacity of 2,500. I don't know how many people are actually jailed there right now, but it's a sprawling campus, uh, dozens of buildings. Um, and the one we're going to talk about today is Building C. Um, this issue deals a lot with reform to the prison system, and it's not something that's new in Delaware. In fact, in the past 12 years, there have been two significant instances where there have been calls for reform in Delaware prisons. Um, in 2004, there was a situation at Vaughn, I don't think it was named Vaughn at the time, but um, a, an inmate was able to rate a prison counselor. That, as you can imagine, spawned all sorts of inquiries and recommendations on what happened and how it could not happen again. What it came down to a lot was understaffing uh, at the prisons, not enough prison guards, um, and Ultimately, what we found out after the riot is those recommendations were not really followed. Uh, again, in 2005, I think, or it might have been 2006, uh, federal authorities actually took some control um, and mandated different reforms from Delaware's prison system after the News Journal wrote a series of articles, and I'm sure there was litigation involved as well. I know there was litigation involved as well regarding uh, the health care offerings for inmates. There was a guy, um, make sure I'm quoting this right, Anthony Pierce, uh, who became known as the brother with two heads, um, who died after a tumor was allowed to grow on him, basically the size of his head. So that led the feds to come in and essentially rest some control uh, for six years over, Del over what sort of health care is allowed to inmates. And these, these types of conversations go back for decades, really. Um, during the first Vaughn trial, there was uh, two men who sat behind the media row every day. Gary Watson was one of them, an older fellow. In I think it was in the it was in the 70s, in the wake of the civil rights movement, he was part of what was called the Smyrna Five, and they essentially, my understanding is, broke out of their prison cells and stabbed a prison guard after he canceled a committee meeting, and their trial became kind of a movement in its own. Some people saw them as kind of the worst, you know, the worst piece of, or the worst examples of Delaware Corrections, and some people saw them as a catalyst. For yeah, change. I mean, there's tons of, I, rem the, I remember the, because um, I'm, you know, I'm from here, so I do vaguely remember the, the, uh, the, the incident being talked about from the 70s. I definitely remember the counselor uh, being assaulted. I remember that. It really, and it's something something so sort of um, benign, or really got piqued my interest about. And maybe you can re remind me because I think it was in the news journal uh, that p guys in solitary were getting fed what they called neutral loaf, looked like a piece of dog shit. <laughs> like, and it was just like, 
Do you, do you remember this story? I remember the Associated Press writing something about yes, that. And it was, but it they came were doing, out, like, I want to say shortly before the uprising, there was a story about... Yeah, uh, now, the, I, don't, I don't remember. Now, now that you say it was the USA Today, maybe it was one of the privatized sort of things. Not but, sure. I mean, I'm sure... I, it seems to me, based on the history that you know, that that's indicative of just how uh, these, these guys are treated. Well, you know, I call, and I'll tell you, I'll just be very honest, I've called it torture in here. And I do think it's torture. Uh, and it's just now, and I, I do want to put a pin in that because a lot of stuff has come out subsequently in lawsuits and things that even paint a real, even bleaker. It's very grim. But I guess we'll, we'll sort of get into that. Well, kind of underpinning that all, and I'm not, like I said, I'm not going to participate in commentary, but I think there I'm not is, asking you there, there is a worthwhile question to, that people should think about when they read these articles, which. So these people are imprisoned because they were convicted of a crime. Um, we've taken away rights, their right to freedom, various rights from them. Um, the question is, what does a decent society, how, how does a decent society treat them afterwards while they're incarcerated? Um, and I think looking at these events in the news, uh, that's the question you need to have in your mind, is what is right um, for, for these people? Is that you know you see a lot of people that automatically say you know what they're in jail doesn't matter how you treat them and um, I think it's I think these types of stories beg the question. Um, so the, so uh, the uprising itself. When did it happen? What is like to just give the general sort well, of overview of well, it? So we're all dealing with the same. I mean, at this point, based based on the the. the the background that you have done and, and sitting in the trial every day, you must have a pretty good feeling of sort of a, a TikTok, I guess. Oh, call yeah. It. So let's fast forward to February 1st, 2017. Um, Patricia May, she's, I guess she's, she's in her late 60s at the time. She's a counselor um, working at Vaughn in Building C. Um, and she testified at the, the first trial, and she talked about a conversation she had with a colleague the morning of the uprising, um, and she complained that while she's a counselor, most of her time was spent on administrative functions, and she was worried she was not able to provide enough counseling for these people. Um, and I'll quote her. Um, the morning of the riot, she tells a colleague, I was concerned we were not allowed to do any treatment, and I was afraid that I'm going to get killed in this building. Um, she said it was common knowledge the building was going to explode, and uh, she she was she was right. Um, so it about early that morning so Anthony Morrow is incarcerated in building C and he described prison as Groundhog Day um, over and over a routine monotony um, his some people that morning were going out to yard which is just you know you get an hour or so don't quote me on that I guess you are um, out in the yard some free time uh, Look, okay so let's put it let's a footnote here's like a, here's a footnote we're in the bunker and we're just having a casual chat. If he mis if he misquotes a, a you know he puts an, an N where there's supposed to be a the, where it says two hundred it's two hundred and twelve. Oh, I don't man. want any of you pedantic pricks fucking putting a <laughs> putting a bunch of comments on it. Hey, fucking fact checking it. We're just having a casual conversation. Go in ahead. any event, so some inmates are spending their morning going out to the yard. Some are going to classes. Some are going to fetch their medication. Um, some are talking on the phone. 
Anthony Morrow was talking to his girlfriend on the phone around 10, 1030. Um, and you can hear in the background this almighty disturbance. Um, you can hear screaming, thumping. There's obviously a fight going on. You hear code one, code one being shouted. Um, code one is the code for an assault on an officer. What prosecutors said happened, so you have a couple dozen inmates that go out to yard. And you imagine Building C, it's a, I'm going to call it mid-max or something like that building where it's not minimum security, it's not max, it's right, it's in between. Um, it's a T-shaped building, 126, 120-some-odd inmates are held there. You imagine the intersection of the arms of the T is called the hub area. There are closets classroom, cafeteria, offices. The arms of the T are the cell tiers. Um, a group of inmates are out at yard. They call first yard, which basically allows for people to come in early to go shower if they want to, or they can stay out in the yard. Witnesses said that they um, saw a number of the inmates readying these makeshift masks, which uh, I don't really know what they were made of, but um, and at some point the three guards that were posted inside are attacked in this coordinated fashion. Um, not sure how many attackers there are. Uh, the, one of the guys who said he planned this thing said, you know, all he needed was six, two for each guard. But they attack these guards brutally. Um, it should be said there's they're beating them. They're using mop ringers as bludgeons. Um, some witnesses reported seeing Sergeant um, Stephen Floyd stabbed n numerous times during this initial attack. Um, ultimately, they're able to subdue the guards in the closets. Now, kind of continuing with this TikToker, stepping back a little bit, um, you can hear all this basically begin because they played Anthony Morrow's phone call for the jury, and you know he he he's he's taken aback by you know he he's like what's so going he was on? He was generally surprised. Yeah, he well he was surprised. You could say he was surprised when you when you hear that kind of thing happening. But um, he he tells his girlfriend they're stabbing a cop up, um, and he taught he you know she's she's. Taken aback, obviously. So they didn't like, disconnect or anything. He's just giving her the blow by blow. He was giving her, and and it's all played for the jury, which is fascinating because you know, as reporters, we knew when this happened. We were reporting on it when it happened, and little details trickle out. But when you get this level of detail, it's it's really interesting. Um, what came out at trial was the signal for this to all take place was a man, Dwayne Stats, who was a defendant in the first trial touching the doorknob on the counselor's office. Now, he testified that he went in the counselor's office, and when he went in that counselor's office, that was a signal for the inmates that he was, he had basically recruited to subdue the guards. He went in there, Patricia May was in there, with another inmate, he had a knife, flashed the knife, the inmate got out of Dodge, and he told her, look, if you don't cooperate, I'm gonna have to use, I don't wanna hurt you, but if you don't cooperate, I'm gonna have to use this. He subdues her, binds her, puts a hood on her. Well, I think before he put the hood on, he told her to get on his computer and contact the news journal. Um, so that was the contact. Because I know that was one of the, the things that I remember following the day it happened. Because now with social media, it's like if, 
you can kind of like you're in it but the news journal got that I remember them having some a lot of communication from the inside before even the cops did well in that in that initial I don't know um, taking Miss May hostage they were she was like she told the jury he's like I don't know how to email the news journal uh, um, so he, he ultimately put a hood on her she was taken to another cell held hostage the guards were subdued, put in closets where two of them um, were held in one closet. Floyd was in the other closet. And trial testimony says that they were beaten. So is the idea, but it's interesting that they put two in one closet and Floyd in the other. I mean, did they kind of know that Floyd probably wasn't going to? I don't know. Come I, out I have no idea. You have no, you can't. There was no, there was no, there was, there was no, no testimony. To at, there's no testimony at trial. It's that, just, it's just interesting that there are three, two going one together, and the guy who who winds up, you know, not surviving goes in his in his own. And the two guards that were in the closet together testify to hearing Floyd being beaten because they're basically a wall separating, but they can hear him intermediately being beaten, beaten, shouted at. Um, and they too. Now, was he like a target? Like, did he? Was he like the the hardest screw kind of thing? I, there that, was there was some there was some testimony, or there was some questioning in the trial toward that. However, there wasn't a lot of that simply because there not, the prosecution didn't present anything to say that Floyd was particularly targeted. Yeah. And the defense also it wasn't in their best interest to say that you know Floyd was targeted for any particular reason. And um, and the 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 people who testified nobody said that Floyd was necessary but he, I mean he did end up dead um, yeah which even even down here in the bunker uh, we've on many occasions said that that's very bad yeah um, it's I mean it's tragedy he was a father um, yeah. and he was a man who just went to work that day um, and he didn't yeah, make it I'll home. tell you the way I put it I said you know I I don't particularly care for corrections officers or cops I've been very clear about that. But I don't want them to die. I just want the system to change. Um, so after Miss May is taken hostage uh, and taken to another cell, uh, Dwayne Stats encounters uh, three other men. It's three. They had been down in the basement working on a, a boiler downstairs, and they had come up from the basement and they testified and they they testified to hear how much. So how much? They, I mean, they must have heard exactly what. Uh, that you, you that was recorded on the phone call. I mean, you hear the ruckus. You hear you make, they they said that they were clueless to what was happening upstairs, and then they does came that up. make sense? I mean, if you can hear you can hear with your own ear the the recording of the phone call, based on the architecture of the building, it makes sense that they would not hear because okay, Anthony okay. Morrow, where he was positioned, he's right in the on the telephone. He would have he was it was happening right outside the I, door. I, okay, I see. Um, they were downstairs in the basement. They came up and so just, they just wander in. They, well, they came up. They come upstairs and they testified that normally a prison is a very loud place. People milling about, doing things, noises being made. They testified to this eerie quiet and how prisoners were just like standing still watching them. So they meander out into this hall, and they, they encounter Dwayne Stats, who holds a knife to them and threatens them. They have a bucket of chemicals, uh, and one of them, thinking quick, threatens, says that, you know, if, you, if, we, if <laughs> we attack you with these chemicals, you're going to die. Um, that gives them time to escape back into the basement, where they are essentially able to lock in. Um, that basement has a stairwell to the attic, called the penthouse. Um, where they were able to, after 10 o'clock at night, crawl out on the roof and escape. 
rough day at the office. Um, but yeah, it's, that's a good, it's, it's most was, of, every day at the office. I go into a fugue state, so I forget I was there. They're never going to forget that one. <laughs> um, so they essentially they have control of the building. There is some response. There, a team of guards come in in riot gear. They don't. My understanding is they do not have firearms, but they come in. So how the, many? How so? How much time's passed? So they subdue. Really, the thing kicks off when they subdue the counselor and beat up the three guards. Put him in a closet. Yes. He comes out of the counselor's office. The maintenance guys come up. Uh, there's an altercation. They're able to retreat back and lock down until night. Now, how much time has passed now? Ten minutes, ten, maybe. Ten minutes, ten, maybe. It, nothing. Like There's very little time passed, and then the first police response comes in, and it's a team of guards. Uh, the leader and another person who was in that team testified, and they, they testified to coming in the front door and seeing furniture strewn about in the hub area as well as blood everywhere, and they're obviously like, what the heck's happening? Because protocol is someone greets you, a prison guard greets you at the door, a correctional officer greets you at the door. Now, they, 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 uh, they called the code out when it, when, it, when, it, when it kicked off, so those guys knew all geared up that well, it was, they were going to walk into something bad. Well, but did they think maybe somebody's subdued in there already, and then it's all it's something? Fine. What was what was initially called as assault on officer, and I'm. It was unclear to me from trial testimony when exactly, because it appears that the prison guards when they, or the correctional officers when they were attacked did not were not able to call off the code. They were shouting code one, but who knows if they were able to actually shout that into the radio? Right. My understanding is the maintenance men, after they were able to retreat to the basement, called the code that brought the response these men walk into the they walk into the the hub area see blood everywhere eerie quiet completely abnormal situation they wander in and encounter floyd through a small window in his closet and um the head of this group testified that floyd warned them that it was a trap and they needed to get out so they they retreated um, and Anthony Morrow put it, uh, I don't misquote him, um, he, he, he thought it was odd that this thing was able to continue. He said, normally they come in 30 deep and kick everybody's ass. Um, and that didn't happen this time. Uh, and, that was basically be- and that was basically because they got tipped off because... Well, Charles Sennett, the guy who led this first foray into the building, said that he didn't know what was going on, and hearing that from Floyd, he did not want his team to become hostages. Um, so they thought best protocol would be to get out of the building and amass, a, a and amass a larger response. Yeah, Dwayne Stats, who testified, said that he he didn't. There was no trap planned. Right. That if they would have started spraying the chemicals and maintenance men, he would have ran like heck. Um, if if they would have if they would have mounted a more aggressive response, it would have been over. But it, it yeah, it's, that's funny because uh, yeah, I mean obviously when when you've you haven't died yet, but you've been you've been beaten and stabbed to death. When you tell if you tell me it's a trap, I'll think it's a trap. Yeah. But if they would have walked in there, it probably would have just ended. Uh, it's it's armchair quarterbacking at this point. Yeah. Uh, it, it's it's interesting to think about. So so they retreat. And the next, so the next phase is essentially they have control of the building, and then they start to use the radios. Now these are open band radios, I guess is the correct term. In that, uh, everybody on everybody on the campus can hear them, and newspaper reporters, enterprising reporters like Carl Baker, can listen to <laughs> them. K Baker during the. Uh, I'll tell you what, this show, uh, during... this show is a huge fan of K Baker. <laughs> but you can you can hear these radio comms, and the 
they establish communication pretty quickly, um, and it's it's immediately threatening. It's that you know, and I don't have a quote right here, but uh, essentially says, if you guys breach, people are going to die, and they have four hostages at that point. Um, says and they 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 immediately demand the media, and they demand Carney. Well, it's um, interesting because that's the the, the big quote. That everybody remembers is that right at this juncture they say we want the media we want Carney right when it right when they realize they have you know the 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 initial wave has retreated because they've caused enough ruckus and that's what they say but it's interesting because the as soon as he walks in and subdues the counselor he says email the news journal this was so this is I just want to put it because all of that is indicative of sort of what this was all about yeah, yeah. Dwayne Stats, th- Stats said that, you know, his plan was not to have Stephen Floyd killed. Um, it was not to... And I don't think, you know, kind of... I get the sense that he maybe didn't think this thing would last as long as it did. Um, his goal was to get some information out um, and to, to make a point and to get Carney's attention. Um Royal Downs, another person whose voice was heard on the radio and was a witness in the trial, and we'll talk about him a little more lately, said that he w- he wanted the media there to prevent um, like a, a really like a, aggressive response. He, you know, yeah. he 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 said that people that run the prisons are murderous, and he said that in court, um, and and he feared he feared that it was going to be a bloodbath. Well, um, I do want to get to that because so much, uh, really, what I consider. I mean, it was a success in the, in, the, in the sense that not what they were able to do at trial and put in the public record with your help. Way to go, buddy! Um, was exactly what they they were able to tell the story that they needed to tell, and that's very it's very interesting to me. But what? So how many? Is there a sense of at this point now that they're communicating and trying to get the message out to the press? Is there a sense of how many people really were involved and how many were just like? the fuck is happening I just want to stay in my cell and get this over with I don't have a, I still don't have a good sense of how many people were yeah there's, there's just, um, just no sense right there, there's a I mean there's an open question 18 people were indicted for some involvement but you know and that, what do you how do you define involvement if you know if you go get water for one of the people who planned it are you involved or if you know right. and it's unclear how many people were actually carrying out these the, the coordinated assault on the guard on the uh, correction officers um, so they, you know, that begins a period of, let's say, negotiation. They negotiate for utilities, um, they negotiate for uh, audience with the media, and they negotiate for some sort of attention from the governor. Um, ultimately, I think we mentioned earlier, they, they do get out, and they call the news journal, and a reporter at the news journal Picks up the phone, picks up her phone, and is like, "Oh my!" <laughs> you know, um, How fortuitous! That's a phone call you don't forget. Um, yeah. And you know they list off a series of demands. Um, they want more educational programs. They want professionalism uh, courses for the guards. They want greater transparency in how the Department of Correction spends its money. Um, greater rehab for people that are going to come out of prison, um, and equal enforcement of the rules among those that are enforcing the rules. Um, 
and they they communi- they're able to communicate that to the news journal in two phone calls um so that was i remember being in the newsroom that day and that's that's just the kind of thing that does like you don't forget when you're you know writing the news and there's a standoff I, I, I'll down tell you, here i wonder if you remember this because i speaking of the thing i i don't rem- i don't forget following it as it went on like it, and it went into the afternoon i saw some photographs of like you know the the state police sort of like rallying and like you know the prisons out sort of on a country road so when you see these like armored personnel carriers like rolling through some country road in kent county yeah you're like do we have the 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 police the state authorities have the army of like a like a small central american country and I remember looking at it and thinking... I can't vouch for that fact. But <laughs> well, again, this is commentary. There's a wall between us. This is all... We're on the, I'm on the editorial side. But yeah, I do. I mean, it was a lot of things are indelible, yeah. There was, I was out there, I think, my shift that night started... I, I volunteered for one of the overnight watches, basically drove down there and sat outside the, uh, yeah. the prison just waiting in it. It was amazing to see, like kind of all these things being mobilized but you have no idea what's going on um but yeah it was a uh, now did they try to do anything overnight did they try to make one move and then they or carney called him back well so what was the first move that it, they made against him well so as these negotiations go forward you have some people in the building some inmates in the building that are affirmed or infirm that are sick and they need to get out um so there begins a wave of inmate or waves of inmates being released as well the two correctional officers that were together um subdued together are released at different times but they're eventually both released so you have floyd in the building may in the building um, and the two guys haven't escaped up the roof yet they they, they escape later i think it's three yeah. um they escape later in the night um so day becomes night. At some point, um, Floyd bleeds to death, uh, according to medical examiner testimony during the trial. Um, he couldn't really put a good time of death on it. Uh, the best he could do was sometime after nightfall. Um, but his, the cause of death was he essentially bled to death. He would, if he would have got some treatment, he could have survived. Yeah. Um, now, why, it's interesting... Did they just want to hold him as a separate hostage and let the other two go because he must have been just as injured as they as they were. I don't I don't know. I think he was probably more injured because everything in trial testimony said that um, he was being stabbed during the initial attack, um, and then while he was in the closet, trial testimony said he was he was beaten some more as right. well. There were the flaming two, they, they, they were flaming objects thrown on him while he was in that closet as well. Oh, he got fucked up. Um, Damn. So. Day becomes night. May is still being held. It's unclear what Floyd's situation is, whether he's alive or dead. Um, May is interesting. Her testimony was really memorable. You know, she she's an older woman, um, and she's obviously terrified. You know, she's asking to call her husband. Not sure if she's going to make it out of this place alive. But at the same, like, so she describes this horror, but she also describes these, these, like, moments of grace where she has these inmates that are essentially protecting her um, and also trying to comfort her, singing gospel songs to her. She described one inmate's voice as angelic, carrying her to the bathroom. At this point, the building is 
full of smoke and there's pools of water everywhere because of the sprinkler system and then just apparently it's ransacked and trashed but they carry her to the restroom um so that was it was really interesting testimony um radio communication ceases a little bit after 1 a.m um and eventually about 5 a.m they they had fortified the building taking these locker boxes I don't remember the dimensions. Large locker boxes filled them with water, placed them against the doors to basically buttress the doors. And there was some conversation as to whether they were fortifying the doors or whether they were creating these blockades where people couldn't see into the hub area. Like inmates who didn't want any part in this couldn't see into the hub area to see what was going on. Um, But they took a bulldozer, knocked in the door on B tier. There's a back door on B tier, knocked in that door and was able to rescue May. And they found Floyd in a pool of water, dead, mattress on top of him, just in a, in a pile of rubbish. And he was pronounced dead at about 5.30 in the morning, and, and they started hauling everybody out. 18 hours, I think, is how long it lasted. Um, now, during this whole episode, there's another kind of layer to it. There's inmates being released during the standoff, and they're all taken to the yard. Now, the yard is a concrete patch of ground between B-tier and C-tier. Um, they take them out there, lay them out, search them, zip-tie them, move them off to the infirmary and into questioning. Um, both inmates who said they were taken out in those waves as well as inmates who were still in the in the building whenever... Uh, it was breached. There are numerous reports that the police assaulted them um, in various ways. I mean, one guy said that they yanked him up, they zip tied him, he was laying on the floor, and they yanked him up by the hood of his hoodie. It ripped, he fell to the ground, and they started kicking him and told him to stop resisting. Um, well, that's a classic uh, that's a classic move. There were other inmates that said that in the yard they were, they were mishandled. And trial evidence, there's pictures of pools of blood in that yard um and it wasn't it wasn't correctional officer blood um so it was 18 hours um may was not harmed other than the you know the mental anguish of being held hostage for that long and not knowing what is going to happen to you which should not be downplayed um so the so the first trial that just ended uh at the end of last year how many uh what were the charges and how many defendants did they feel that they were going to take the trial first? Well, their, the first trial consisted initially of four inmates, and they were all charged with the same thing, multiple counts of murder, different, basically different flavors of murder, different uh, liability theories, I think is the right term. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong about that. Um, they were charged with murder, conspiracy, assault, kidnapping, riot. I might be missing something there. They're each charged with the same thing. Prosecutors had different theories about what these four men's role were. One of the one of the defendants, he was jettisoned from the trial. I think it was the first week. He had a conflict with his attorney, um, and they said, "Well, instead of like you compromising the trial of the other defendants, we're just gonna we'll shuffle you into another trial." Um, they have. I should note they have four trials total plan for everyone they've indicted for this um and that that began in october that first trial um 
So what? And we talked all through the trial because this is just a topic that I I have a lot of interest in, and it was uh, we talked about because how many defendants defended themselves? Two. Yeah, there were um, two pro se defendants. Um, both were lifers, so they were they had been in in prison for committing murder on life sentences. Um, but they represented themselves, which created an interesting situation. Um, I don't know. It was just the it made the proceeding really interesting because they had they had guards lining basically the area where they were uh, where they were seated. Um, they gave them rubber pins, uh, no paper clips. Um, and during trial, when there's a question about how some a legal question about how something should proceed, there's a sidebar, and usually the attorneys go over to the side with the judge, and there's some white noise turned on, so you can't hear anything. It's an awful, annoying thing. Um, but in this case, they couldn't really get the in, they couldn't get the defendants that close to the judge. So you got to hear all the kind of legal, they basically did it in open court, so you got to hear all the kind of legal wrangling go on, which made for an interesting kind of, um, I don't know, it just made it unique. They always have to send the jury out for that, though. That's got a that's pain to, in the balls. They have to send the jury out. That's, there was a lot of, uh, a lot of back and forth back and there. Forth. Um, so again, our, our conversations sort of uh, were around the idea of, you know, taking that risk to get your story out. And you know them going pro se and and being able to sort of control control the narrative in a in a in a, in a certain sense it sounds like Trump, <laughs> uh, but yeah they were able to control the narrative so they really you know in in that sense were able to shine a light on it uh, of what just what the conditions were like and sort of what what it takes for you to basically. I mean, you're just risking it all at that point. I think what I said was, you said something about you know defending yourself is never a good idea, and that's actually almost always true. Yeah. But in this case, in this extreme case, I, I'm not sure that it was. I think I think it was the right thing for them to do. Well, I'm not sure, and and maybe one day I'll get to talk to Dwayne Stats and Jero Ayers, the other defendant who represented himself. Hopefully, I will. Dude, you could do like a Capote uh, thing and go into the prison and talk to him. I, I you am, could be the Wilmington Capote. I'm I'm down to go talk to them. I'll just say that. Um, and I, I've written them, so we'll see we'll see what becomes of that. Um, but well, let's let me let me kind of back up. So. The way the trial basically shakes out is they bring in a number of people like Patricia May, like the people who were held hostage and made it out alive, like the guys who came in and were the initial responders, the maintenance men. They brought them all in, had them tell their story, and established that there was, in fact, a prison takeover for the jury. Yeah, um, there was, in fact, an uprising in this prison. There was scant evidence, though, basically speaking about the culpability of the defendants from those witnesses. And Building C, where this occurred, is interesting. There are no security cameras in there. There were no security cameras in there. And then there's also no real physical evidence. Well, in this particular trial, and the defendants were on trial, there were no physical evidence, no you know, magic DNA that's going to say, oh, that definitely... Yeah, and I think that was the whole... I mean, part of the picture that you painted for me, and I hope everybody sort of got this, was that... I, yeah, now, it's only the first trial, so you can only evaluate the evidence that they presented for these three men 
because they cut the other one off, right? But the other one's yeah. jettisoned off. Well, he'll, so he'll you don't evaluate later. that. But but what is your sense of the strength? Like, I mean, obviously the uprising is is pandemonium. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's chaos. Mm-hmm. And considering, you know, you have you have no cameras, you have really no physical evidence to speak of. You have just the two guards that were there the counselor and the three maintenance guys had escaped. Mm-hmm. How did they establish that it was these, that the most serious offenses, the planners, the the guy who put the knife into in, into the guard, how did they decide these were the worst three? Well, everything in this trial in terms of the culpability of the defendants rested, well, I'll, well, I'll, I'll make a note about this later, but most of the evidence was from inmates that were in the building at the time that they hauled in to testify. So, you know, there are, I think it was about a dozen inmates said, I saw this, you know, I saw this person attack this person at this time, and I was over here and I saw this, and their stories don't always match. It's imperfect. They're wearing masks. There's, you know, the defense attorney that was representing the non-pro se litigant, he made hay about the credibility of the inmate witnesses and you know what they might have to gain but it all centered on and mostly I should say mostly centered for Jerome Ayers particularly and Derek Forney the other man on trial in this first round it mainly centered on these um, inmate witnesses with Dwayne Stats it was a little different because well he, he basically said what he did throughout so the prosecution, how this works, the prosecution puts on its case. It calls all of its witnesses. Defense has a chance to put on their case. Right. Um, and he's cross-examining the um, state's witnesses. And at some point, he tells Patricia May, while she's on the stand, he's like, and this was out of the blue, he's like, you know that was me that came in and, and, and you know held a knife to you. And the judge was like, you, you can't testify right now. He's like, your job is to ask our questions. You can't testify because you're, right now you're, you're playing that role. But they had him because... But again, that goes to the point of like the, the, in the extreme situation he was in, that's how he's controlling the, yeah. controlling the narrative well, and making it, you know. And they did intercept a letter. He wrote a, a letter known in prison as a kite. Um, to one of his fellow inmates, where he, he love that shit. Where <laughs> your, your eyes, whenever you get a little piece of like insider baseball trivia, your right. eyes go. You're like in prison. It's known as a kite. I, lo- I like those fun little details. Um, so is that an inner office kind of deal? I don't know. Well, so this this kite, he, he's writing it to one of his friends, and he basically takes credit for planning all of this and discusses the aftermath and discusses what he expected and didn't expect from it all. Um, so they present this in evidence, and they get they bring in a handwriting expert who basically, you know, who says, "Well, you know, this this letter he crosses his T's like this and dots his eyes like that. It's got to be him. He definitely wrote it." Um, after the prosecution rests, Dwayne Stats actually takes the stand, um, which was something I had not seen before because he is his own attorney, um, but he's also testifying for himself. Correct. So he's essentially able to give up, get up, and give a narrative of what he, you know, whatever he wants to say, essentially pertinent to the pertinent to the evidence. As long as the judge says it's relevant, you can actually just so talk. He took this letter that they entered into evidence, and he basically read it with annotations. You know, he's like, I wrote this because of this. I wrote that because of that. He said that. Well, give us give us a couple of examples. Don't uh, you know? No, he he said that. You know, for example, he he said that. 
when he reads about everything that has happened since, um, he's amazed that everything, you know, talk about reforms, um, changes to the way the prisons are operated. You know, he, he's, he, he saw some of this happening, but he's, he, he, he's somewhat, I guess, somewhat surprised by it maybe, um, or he's just remarking on it. He, you know, he described it as a seed in a tree, growing into a tree. Um, he talks about how he didn't anticipate that um, after the uprising, a lot of the inmates wouldn't get their personal belongings back. Um, he didn't see that coming. Um, I have a, I actually I have the text of it. Um, That's pretty interesting because it really, well, as soon as you said, you know, the prosecution presents this letter, and I, I hadn't gotten a lot of the details of it. I'm like, well, that's that's what it's about. <laughs> it's almost like they don't kind of get they don't get it, but I guess they they're paid not to get it. <laughs> um. So he, you know, his story is. I mean, they they say that the prosecutors will say that um, he planned this and also participated in some of the violence. His story was that I did plan this. I recruited lifers to subdue the guards in order to get the attention of the governor. He says that he personally never wore a mask, never hurt anybody, never actually committed any of the violence. Um, and, you know, he's basically given a platform to, to get up and, say, and tell all that. Yeah, and so it leads us sort of to, like, the step that's starting to come out now. Um, we mentioned it earlier with sort of Carney shipping inmates out from, you know, paying money to have them housed in Pennsylvania. There's been other lawsuits that uh, some of the information in the lawsuits have become public. What, Based on all of this um, media and, and, and pressure that this uprising has sort of brought, uh, swelled up, what have we learned from the, the subsequent moves that Carney's made in the state and, 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 and uh, lawsuits and things like that? Now, a number of things have happened or happened in the immediate aftermath. Um, the warden was placed on leave. Uh, later we found out he was transferred elsewhere within the Department of Corrections. Um, one attorney described that as a lateral firing, um, which I thought was a fun turn. Um, I think a year after, I mean, it caused a lot of anxiety among the people working in the Department of Corrections. A year after, or I guess a year ago now, um, the News Journal reported that there were 100 fewer guards or corrections officers working within the Department of Corrections, and it was already a tax system. Um, so what you see from in the immediate aftermath as far as calls for reform centers a lot around pay for correctional officers and the stability or the, the foundation and the, the, the administration of the prisons. Well, that's um, actually, I, I wonder that, see, that's disappointing for me. So this is a commentary. Should I announce it's going to be commentary? That's fine, yeah. Okay. Because the other side of that coin is, and again, I think people should get a fair wage. It's a dangerous job. It's a necessary job. I'm not an idiot. However, the other side of that coin is, there are folks, I mean, we have per capita, the people that we incarcerate, it's ridiculous. The, the ratio, I forget what it is, but it's, it's extremely high per capita of the people that we have incarcerated. And that can't, I mean, it can't be right. There's got to be no, the, 25% of, 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 with the proper support, regular 
you know, social support. 25% of those guys could be released tomorrow. And there's never any sort of... Um, nobody ever wonders why that isn't... Nobody talks about it. Well, they're, as, they're, as, a, as an opportunity, like, we don't have to... We don't have to lock up so many fucking people to feel that we're doing it's not something. it's not i would not, i would disagree that nobody ever talks about it um we just had an election for attorney general um it was the first democratic primary we've had in uh 15 uh, don't quote me on that more than a decade um and there mass incarceration was the topic that was talked about during that race but here, um, a lot of things let me ask you and, this, and well, this is, oh, let me finish let me finish oh boy the state is also in recent the state in in recent years has reformed habitual offender laws. Um, basically, three strikes, you're out, or three strikes, you're in for life. You got people that are, you know, committing robberies or drug crimes. You get three of them, you go to jail. I'm writing a story right now. A guy who just got out of prison, he did 15 years of a life sentence for uh, three cocaine convictions, um, and he's given a second chance in life, and I'd, I'd be willing to. I, I doubt that he's going back. I doubt he's going to reoffend. Um, yeah, but and again, you look at some of those, uh, some of those activities. It's like people grow out of some of that stuff. It's nonviolent. Some of it, yeah. some of it, even when it's violent, it's you know, it's something you don't have to go to, to prison for fifteen years. I, I'll, uh, that's my. That's just my. I'll concede that there is always room for a more to work toward a more just system, but. It is. Uh, it's also true that there have been things that have been happening in Delaware that have pushed towards that, and hopefully there will be more of that and more of that conversation happening. Um, and it's starting to become a thing where the left and the right are into it because it's, it costs a lot of money to incarcerate people. Yeah, but here's my my question is this, and this is a broader uh, political question, because we've had variants of this conversation in here about the local elections and we had it specifically with Kerry Harris but even more broadly so a lot of these Democrats got primaried from the left some of it worked some of it didn't do you think because really in the attorney general race the, the, the establishment candidate still won so yeah, they that was because Chris Johnson uh, was in the race, and um, I can't remember who else ran for the third person. Because they ran in the race, a lot of rhetoric was spewed during these discussions, panel discussions, debates, whatever you want to call them. Do you think that means anything to McGinnis? I don't. Some people I do. You like, mean to Jennings? Jennings, the excuse me. Jones. Sorry. No. Yeah. How could I? <laughs> How can I confuse them? Uh, sorry. Um, yeah, to Jennings. Do you think that? Um, do you? I, I uh, do you think that that changes? Is she going to be materially different than Matt Den? I don't know. First of all, I mean, I, based on, and again, I'm I'm just asking you based on. Uh, you, it's not news. It's just. Yes, because there was rhetoric that you reported on that had to do with reform, that had to do with, you know basically lowering the prison population because it's ridiculous, putting more money into it, not only for uh, corrections officers, but for programs. You know, I know a guy who would talk, I don't, you know, I'm going to say his name, but <clears throat> he he went in there and did programs for, they'd be like vocational. You know? mm -hmm. 
and taught classes in there, and he was just appalled by just how it was run, how the men were treated. And there's no money for that. But that was talked about during the primary. But I just feel like because the establishment person won, we have no reason to believe that any of that's going to happen. Well, I'll say that I think the what happens now largely dependent on the constituency and the people that elected Miss Jennings to office, how active they are in trying to hold her to her rhetoric. I think it's very important for voters to remain engaged. This is the first time that themes of mercy and um, spending our money wisely in terms of incarceration has really been at the forefront of a Democratic primary for Attorney General in Delaware. And that rhetoric gives the public and her supporters something to go back to and say, hey, when the, gen- attorney, when the General Assembly is in session, go down to Dover and say, hey, you know, this is what you said you were going to do. It's time to do it. Um, so I, I, I don't know what's going to happen. I am not in a position to say that it's just not going to happen because she is the establishment candidate. No, that's fair. That's um, fair. But I, I think, again, it, I think we, it comes down to how much We people- had this conversation in Middletown just this when we went down and protested the thing in Middletown because we were talking to another activist, been in here, Kobe Owens. And he said, you know, I think they're kind of placating uh, the – the picket because they know it's a bad look and it's gross and but like really is anything going to happen and that's what kobe said he's like you know it's if you sustain it and you go back in six months and you're like remember we were here six months ago and you said you were going to put some sort of process in place so you're not having a you know a clan rally or or you have to give a permit i mean again i'm sort of a free speech absolutist too if you want to have a clan march have one but you know it has to be it can't be. It has to. It has to be controlled in some fashion. You just can't have Rubes and Hicks riding a, you know, pulling a, a trailer down the street. Yeah. But yeah, a lot of it has to do with follow up. And luckily, I think that we're building part of the idea of being here is to sort of just try to foster a general solidarity between DSA at UD, between people who do activism work, between people who report on it politicians, people who run for office, all that. Because, yeah, nothing's going to really happen unless, you know, it's a fight. You know, it, it seems counterintuitive to say you really have to fight or the, the people are going to get treated like shit. You know, capital and the oligarchs in the Delaware way are going to treat people like shit if you let them treat them like shit. Well, this you, is what, you, you... I know you don't want to hear. I, no, this, 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 this is just me talking. That's fine. Every, everyone has their compass. Um, and what I hope that people can get out of reading our coverage is, okay, so say, we'll take this situation for example. Um, it led to lawsuits. That's state expenditure. You can consider what those lawsuits and the claims that were made in them, what it said about our policy at, our, at the time and what it said about the leaders at the time. Um, it also led to change some change um and you using your compass can judge the righteousness and efficacy of that change um look at you so i mean my role here is just to kind of 
let people know what's going on. Um, All right, back to business. So let's, you know, we kind of got off on a tangent there talking about Miss um, Jennings and whatnot. I want, I want to make clear a couple things that happened in the aftermath. Um, so this happens immediately. There's some introspection on the part of the Department of Corrections that, you know, they're pulled in front of the General Assembly officials are, and they ask them, you know, why did this happen? Um, and what begins to develop is this idea that, well, we don't have enough correctional officers and the correctional officers that are there are put under extreme strain because we don't have enough huge overtime, stressful situation, and something like this causes a lot of people to quit um, because it's, it's a traumatic event. Um, so a lot of what happened in the immediate aftermath as far as the General Assembly goes was to try to, they gave correctional officers a raise, boosted the base pay, I think, in this fiscal year, it's now $43,000. Um, they, they put security cameras, uh, they made sure they had more security cameras in the, uh, in the facility. Um, Captain Hindsight. There was, and, you know, that, that's a jab, but it's also, there's, there's some truth to it because the 2005 report after um, the counselor was raped, uh, Ed Vaughn said that you have a big staffing problem um, in the in the prisons, and uh, I, officials pretty much admitted that we got that report, but it didn't come to pass. Um, I would like to put just a, real quickly: uh, if John Carney gets primary, which we all hope he will, this is something we want to talk about a lot more. How this is like a known because that's this, these are not uh, you know, everybody knew that this was going to explode. I mean, you said it earlier. This isn't. This wasn't. This wasn't a, sh- a surprise. It was a horrific, but it wasn't surprising. Fair. Um, there was the governor commissioned uh, an investigation, obviously, uh, and that that essentially said what you know that staffing issues and I want to get the correct wording. Uh, um, Checks notes. Essentially, that. It was a long time coming. Conditions have been deteriorating for inmates and employees. The staff is overworked, and there was inconsistent enforcement of rules and regulations. And this is what the report said came to lead to this uprising. Now, the people who who made this report, you know, they didn't talk a lot about reforms specific to the everyday lives lives of inmates. They did say that. Many staff and inmates voice concerns over lack of rehab services available in the prison. And then there was an increase in educational services to some extent. Um, inmates were in, allowed to get what's called a general equi- equivalency diploma. Excuse me. Um, and little things like correctional officers apparently used to wear masks when they were doing searches. They no longer do that. Um, and I mentioned security cameras, and then also some technology access for some of the um, low-security inmates. That was implemented. Uh, but a lot, most the conversation, a lot of people would argue the conversation was dominated by correctional officer pay and staffing. Um, Look, and, and, and that's, and I guess that's the point I'm trying to make. I, if I mean, I think just it's the same that I think about uh, teachers. Uh, fi- firemen, firefighters, excuse me. God, it's so archaic. Um, I don't think it about cops because I just don't like cops. But 
But I think correction officers too, like forty three thousand dollars a year, like as a family, like is that enough? Like that doesn't seem like enough. So I so I get that part of it. I'm I'm fully behind that. However, there's been no real. Nobody has come out and said, you know, we can let a lot of these guys out. Just let them out. We don't have to do this. Like, it's not necessary. Like, for I'll give you an example. De Blasio, Bill De Blasio in New York just said, now again, he's trying to get some of his, after what he did with Amazon, he should be freaking, should have been drawn and quartered. But what did he come out with do this week? He's going to expand all of the uh, civic health care to the whole city. Even undocumented people get it because they're actually human beings. I don't know if you know that. You could come out and do something grand and people would say, wow, that's a real, that's a real liberal guy. Left this guy. Look, he's trying to help out. You know, maybe he sold us out to Amazon, but okay, it was fair trade. Everybody gets health care. <laughs> but Carney's first instinct always is never that. It's, it's never – it's one, he's very, very uh, – that's why he's a good politician, I guess, because he's like a robot. They tell him what to say and he just keeps saying it. And I just feel like any reform – got to at least talk about it before he'll ever do it. And he probably won't do it anyway. But there's never any reform on the other side. There, Like I said, there has been talk about – I, I your point's taken. Um, there has been talk about reducing or Delaware's mass incarceration problem. And, you know, it, it was a platform for the Democrats to go around, and we'll see what happens in the General Assembly. There are a number of initiatives moving forward regarding bail, um, sentencing, things like that. Particularly for juveniles. I wish I'd um, remember that ratio, whatever it was, because the per capita incarceration rate in Delaware is extremely oh bad. Be somewhere it's seven hundred fifty-six. Per 100,000 residents, 18th highest rate in the country. The national average is 700. Okay. Um, you know, not, so it's a, it's it's bad, but it's sort of uh, it's like mid table. Not Louisiana bad. Well, Louisiana's that's something else. Honestly, I don't know. I I should say I don't know the exact numbers on that. Um, but any any event, what I you had also is bad. what you had also after this, um, you've had a couple of lawsuits, and I'll talk about first. I'll talk about the one that has actually run its course, and it was actually a very brief course. Um, the family of Sergeant Floyd, who died uh, in this riot uprising, sued along with the other people that were in the building. Um, generally, the allegation was that former governors, particularly Markell and Minner, put money before safety in the Department of Corrections and that they overlooked obvious signs that a calamity was brewing. Um, there were other allegations, and we'll get to that in a minute, but this kind of ties into what we were talking about earlier with uh, Camp Hill. Um, you know, uh, well, just a, a fun statistic, you know, Markell's first year, corrections employees worked approximately 500,000 uh, hours of overtime. By 2015, that had risen to 800,000. So it's a growing issue. And you got to imagine, so... You're saying that you're disappointed that there are not more reforms specific to the lives of inmates. I hear that, I understand that. But there's also, one could make an argument that says that if you have a better staffed prison and the people that are working there are not under so much pressure working dozen hours of overtime every time, every turnaround, that they are going to be 
less taxed and therefore are going to treat people better. Um, I'm so, so here's, here's my problem with it. I completely agree with what you're saying. You're, you're right. You know, if, if you could do those things, it would certainly ameliorate, you know, maybe the super, some of the superficial stuff. Yeah. Because it would be, but all you're talking, what, what you're talking about boils down to managing the, the gulag better. Do you know what I mean? Do you, I'm, you, yeah, you I get me? Like, I'm, I'm just like, playing devil's the, advocate yeah, here. I, mean, I understand what you mean. It, you, could, you could certainly, from an administrative standpoint, you could manage it more, I was going to say more humanely, but I don't really believe that. You could manage it a little bit better and it wouldn't be, you know, a disaster what I think is 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 tantamount to torture, uh, but you, but it's the same. The whole idea of it is to basically break people. We don't, and we or we hold them in pens because we just need to keep certain neighborhoods safe, certain people there. It's a it's a it's a fucking racket. The whole system's a racket, and it's a racket on the back of human beings. And I don't think <clears throat> um, managing it better. Is really where we want to go, but from a like, if you know, if if Albright was here, he'd say that's radical. You have to, you have to make some compromises. Uh, so I, I I get that, and again, and and because everything you said, if that, if it was if if politics worked out in such a way where this fucking squid carny could do four of those things you said or three of them. I mean, it would be a godsend because the guy's useless. Well, so the idea, what you're saying, is true. All of those things would be a benefit, but I just, I the whole premise, I disagree with. I understand. I appreciate your commentary. Now, what I can, he's got to fucking, he's got to demarcate. What what I can report to you, um, kind of moving forward, is so last year, the state spent more than thirty million on overtime in prisons, and that was a forty percent jump over the year before. So clearly. Even after these things have happened after the after the uprising, it's still a problem. That's why we have in November the state shipping off. I think it was 300 inmates, 330 inmates to Pennsylvania and elsewhere to be housed there. And then Esteban's excellent story today, talking about you know whether or not that decision was fully thought out, given the troubles that Vermont has had um, with its inmates having poor access to healthcare. And I can tell you that. Since that was announced in November, if you read the news journal, you will have seen that it's caused big problems, or big problems, it's caused, yeah, it's caused problems for families. They're further away from their loved ones. Um, and it's also caused, we've heard that it's caused problems for inmates, inmates trying to get their health care regimen, um, inmates trying to maintain their classification that they were in before. Um, so it's, you know, we're just starting to kind of, it'll, it'll be a while before we fully understand the consequences of that action. Um, but, and and so I guess that's what I'm sort of saying. Like you're, he, like the, the, the Carney-esque move is to like, like middle manage your way out of it. So the numbers work, like how much money do we have and what can we shift around? But you're doing that on the backs of people. And so it's very difficult for me to remove that context from it. Because you like you said, like people don't care that, you know, the guy just lost some of his shit because they moved him out 
Now he doesn't have the stuff he had before. Mm-hmm. Or his or his classification changed, like you said. Or now he's in a place maybe he's more in danger. Nobody knows him there. Well, the, the, and the Camp Hill, I think, prison is like a processing prison. So there's a bunch of crazy shit going on. Then they process them out to other state prisons in Pennsylvania, I think. Now, another, and this is kind of... Tr- this is kind of uh, that lawsuit was ultimately settled for 7.5 million dollars it cost taxpayers 7.5 million now does and that, that that's all that all of the the uh it was brought by the family Floyd, of floyd Floyd's and family. the and the other hostages and the other hostages so that's that's the whole it was state so yeah i mean that was settled and it was settled pretty quickly you didn't get to discovery you didn't get, and there it made it made it probably it, would have been i mean i'm not compared to what we're spending to ship people out of uh here i mean that's what they, all they care about. Seven point five million dollars is a lot of money. It's a lot um, of scratch. Sure. But, but anyway, it also the lawsuit also made some interesting allegations, and um, one of them was that Carney delayed breaching the building, and this infuriated his lieutenants. Uh, and that's made even more interesting by the medical examiner's testimony that Sergeant Floyd essentially bled out. Um, so what now, you're saying is the governor killed Sergeant Floyd. Is that, that is what you're saying? Not what Are I'm you saying? saying that, is that exactly what you're saying? That is not what I'm saying. I'm, I mean, it sounds like you're um, saying the governor's a murderer. It's it's. Do you work at the paper? I'm saying there's an interesting question to be asked, um, and it's kind of it's kind of armchair quarterbacking without being able to see any sort of like replays or anything like that, or not being in the room. But I think it's a fair question to ask that. You know, Dwayne Stats is running the show over there, and he says he's waiting on a letter of intent from the governor. Could he have ended it earlier? Could they have breached the building earlier? The trial testimony really hasn't touched on any of that. Um, now, there will be those who say that, you know, it's a, it's a dumb question to ask, but I think it's a fair question to ask. Um, particularly, I, I don't know. It's It kind of goes to this... Again, it's armchair quarterbacking. Like we're not there in the room. We don't yeah, know. And again, we I, don't know how, what intel they're getting. And and again, I I see. And I'm outside. You create that, a like, dangerous precedent too. If the governor like you, if if inmates take hostages and the gov- you know, call on the governor an audience with the governor, and the governor gives them that audience, you know, it's a dangerous precedent. Uh, that we do this and we get that. Yeah, it's an idea. Unless you, unless you actually uh, follow through on it, and then that will be like, oh, down there's a new process by which we can redress our grievances like human beings. Yeah, well. Again, people, that, the, the lack of imagination, political imagination in people is probably going to get us all killed. I should note that... The governor has denied any allegation that he delayed breaching, and the lawsuit was settled without any admission of wrongdoing. I'm glad you noted that. That's important. I'm glad you noted that. We're going to edit that out. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to change that into, like, I would like to note that, yeah, I mean, all the evidence points towards John Carty is a murderer. Uh, Not what I said. Um, We're not. There's another. I think it's pretty clear what you said and what I said. There's another uh, interesting lawsuit that has come from this um, that really uh, questions this idea that Department of Corrections officials and the people operating under them, uh, the allegation is essentially that they were able to brutalize the prisoners that came out of that building. Uh, and that were in that building with impunity. Um, yeah, this was the latest thing that I read that was extremely disturbing. So, there's it was filed 
mid-trial, I guess in November, there are 120-some-odd plaintiffs that were both in Building C and outside Building C. It names dozens of state officials, including Carney, as, a defendant, as defendants. Um, and it essentially alleges that there were abuses of various flavors um, against inmates going on before the uprising and then that intensified after the uprising. And we're talking about prisoners being beaten in the immediate aftermath. And then we're also talking about what the attorney, Stephen Hampton, who filed it, describes as ongoing abuse, which amounts to or is comprised of withholding basic provisions from people, um, intense, overly intense and invasive searches uh, that one, I think the lawsuit characterizes as sexual assault happening. Yeah, um, I mean, it was described, I don't know if, I would assume you described it, but it was even in more explicit terms. Uh, yeah, it was, it, it's, the things that are alleged in there are pretty vile. Um, and, you know, that goes back to the question of, yes, these people um, have been convicted of crimes. Not all of them, some of them are pre-trial, which I don't think any, actually I should say, I don't think any of the plaintiffs in this case are pre-trial, but some people incarcerated are pre-trial. But it goes back to the question of how do we treat our prisoners? Um, and it was just filed recently, so we don't know like what course it's going to take. It will be very interesting to see if it makes it to the discovery phase because that's when things like disciplinary reports, internal reports will be mandated, made essentially public by the courts. Um, and a lot of these questions that we've asked hadn't been able to get answers to, um, the court may force them to answer it. And, you know, like I said, the, the allegations well, so are pretty So do you feel severe. like, the, do you, so the next, in the next wave and beyond of, of, of groups of defendants that they're, I guess they're going to be, they've been indicted on lesser charges in some fashion? No, they're the same charges. Oh, really? Murder, yeah. So they're, they've... There are 16 people that face the same suite of charges, including murder, uh, assault, conspiracy, kidnapping, and riot. Yeah. Um, so what What was the... And, and they are separated now for, a, I guess, a, a myriad of legal reasons? Is that No, it's just like... It's, uh, it's mainly just... You can't put 16 people on trial at one time. It would just be too unwieldy for the process, I would imagine. Uh, you know, and I should note, just for the usefulness of the listener that that civil lawsuit we were just discussing is an entirely separate that alleges abuse um it alleges correctional officers abusing inmates that is a completely separate proceeding than what we're talking about the criminal trial um Although they intersect in interesting ways. I will tell ways. you, I, I didn't think you needed to, to explain the difference between a civil suit and a criminal trial, but then I realized that a lot of people who file this stuff are fucking stupid. So I'm glad you did that. Um, point being that that and the first trial did speak to the civil trial, though, because these witnesses are getting up on stand, and while they're talking about the potential culpability of the men on trial they're also talking about how they were brutalized um because yeah, that's evidence in this that, well that you, it's uh, just it's not it's not it's can not, they use that testimony as any kind of no no it's just it just it's it's just sworn testimony that speaks to something else that's happening in the legal system i don't think yeah. it has any real like weight or or um on the on the civil case but we'll we'll see how that shakes out well I, like you said 
I think it's all – it actually might come down. And you're a part of this is doing your, your role as the – what are you, in the fourth estate? Yeah, it's the fourth estate. <laughs> the third Reich and the fourth estate. <laughs> uh, yeah, about sustaining this effort. You said that the only way to broadly any kind of reform, criminal justice reform or anything else, is if it, there's a sustained sort of – Hey, you remember you said this. These are the problems this has caused. Somebody has to advocate for it, because that's my one of, one of my concerns is that sort of like we were talking about, Carney is sort of only going to go down one path. He's going to stay in his lane. Lack of imagination. Like until somebody makes these arguments in public, the people who live in this neighborhood are going to be blissfully ignorant of anything that's going on. Okay. And it's and it, and it's you know it's not it's it's. It's, it's, it's no good. No, covering this thing is a public service for a number of reasons because, a, this you know it's about how, you know it is. Whether or not this is the aspect you like to think about or not, but it is about justice for this man who was killed and these people that were maimed. Um, it's also about the statement that was made by this happening, the need for reform in Dwayne Stat's eyes. Um, and it's also a huge expenditure for taxpayers um, when you think about all the lawsuits, whether the reforms that flowed from it are um, effective and righteous. Um, so it's our role to at least try to document the details and put it out there for people and let people with commentary like yourself chew on it. You're my content. You provide, <laughs> you provide content. Um, it's 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 a fascinating story. Um, yeah, I mean, it's I, I really do uh, appreciate the way you covered it. I told you personally a couple times because I thought it was very uh, because it's you know it's definitely I mean it's it's fraught right because on one hand, like you said, there isn't there is an aspect, and I can't deny it. There's this guy should get justice. Guy was killed. Well, so look it's at terrible. Dwayne, look at Dwayne's stats. He. And there, there are people that came to the trial that support him 100% and see him as a rights figure, that see him as someone who stood up and has sparked change. There are other people who say he is a cold-blooded murderer, and then there are, there are some who take it further and say he should be put to death. Um, well, that's, those people that's, are maniacs. <laughs> I mean, yeah, a lot of people. We were talking about the people. You had to explain the difference between the civil and the that's, criminal. Yeah, that's that's yeah, I mean, that's fine. That's your view. The, my point is that it's a it's a highly complicated situation. Look, and I would here's the way I would if if, if you want to know where I fall on that spectrum. I think I already know. Well, I will. <laughs> I, 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 I do. I fall on the. You know, I I don't. I'm not happy anybody dies. That's kind of garbage. In this instance, there is a, a, a an argument to be made that these I've made the argument that a lot of these guys are tortured. I think they're treated in an inhumane way. I think the entire system, again, we can't even... It's radical to even say that there's too many of them incarcerated. If if that if it's if the arguments I'm making about just the number of people who are incarcerated is radical and people don't hardly ever make it, people don't even think about it sometimes, then we're in a desperate situation. And so I I appreciate the fact that guys who have nothing to lose 
try to do something very dangerous and put their their lives at risk, and and there was and a tragedy happened. But I, I certainly, I, I certainly don't I don't place any blame on them. I think they were in in just it's a it's a horrible system, and I I, I would never look down on the guys for what they did, because of because of even even if what we know that you've cataloged and you've read so you know you have it down you you have it on record i mean that's what we know now do you think based on everything you i, I won't even ask this question because you can't answer it but in my opinion based on everything we know that lex just outlined i think it's worse i think this is just a little bit that has that has snuck out through legal means like you said the only way you're going to be able to uh, follow up on a lot of this stuff is whether these lawsuits and these trials go forward. Otherwise, it's all going to be secret. We're never going to have that context. We're never going to know. Yeah. So if we already know this, how bad do you think it is? That's a rhetorical question. No, it's like it must. It, 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 I, I can't. I can't even imagine it. So yeah, the guy that died is tragic. But if you think I blame the however many guys were organizing that uprising for what they did, I don't. Moving forward, there are... Ha <laughs> ha, I'm trying to fucking get you, man. <laughs> Moving forward, there are, there are questions about reform, but there's also questions about the judicial process and how these things shake out, the power of the prosecutor. So 18 people were indicted for murder. How many people were actually implementing wounds on uh, Sergeant Floyd and how many people were intensely involved in the planning is a, something that is was not made clear during any of the trial testimony. Um, and, you know, I'm left wondering after the trial why some people were indicted and why some people were not indicted. Some witnesses that were brought up that, yeah. you know, admitted doing certain things. Royal Downs talking on the radio. He was indicted, but he's not he's not sending trial for murder. Yeah, because, um, he, because he was a prosecution witness. Stats and Ayers, uh, Jero Ayers, one of the other defendants on trial, questioned the, uh, the ages of a lot of the people indicted, um, insinuating that... Uh, there was being there the pressure of the charges was being used to flip people and have them testify against to make it an easier. Path. Well, I mean that's a common. That's not even a cons. It's not even a conspiracy well, consider, theory. I mean they they do that as a common practice. Consider right? Derek Forney's circumstance. He was a he was a, the third defendant in this thing, and he was represented by an attorney, Ben Gifford. Um, but he's you know I, I think he's in his mid late twenties. Um, he has he's in he's been in jail for a number of years and he has he has seven more years left on his on his sentence before the uh, before the uprising. He's pro he's charged with murder, automatic life sentence if convicted. During this process where they're leading up to trial, they offer him a plea deal. So he's sitting there considering looking at the rest of his life. He's like, ah, eh, well, you know, and I don't know what kind of deal they offered him, but. Looking at maybe tacking a few years onto that onto that sentence, at seven years, but avoiding the potential of staying in for life, but he decides to roll the dice. Essentially, put his entire future in the hands of twelve strangers for this four-week ride of witness testimony and see how it shakes out. And ultimately, he was exonerated. Um, he was convicted on none of the charges and. Uh, it paid off for him, but just imagine being in his shoes. He says he got on the stand and said he didn't have anything to do with any of it, and essentially said some of the witnesses that the prosecutors called were lying. Um, and I don't know. It's just 
I can't imagine being in that kind of situation where you're having to weigh this this trial process um, versus taking a plea, you know. But, you know, he, he said he didn't do it, and the process bared that out. Well, I have a sneaky suspicion we're going to be having you back in to talk about this a little bit more one way or the other, however these trials go, because it's extremely interesting. And it's going to impact uh, a lot of a lot of politics and a, a lot of uh, a lot of other things around here. Oh, so you you enjoy talking about this? You enjoy re- reading about this? Thinking about this? Do you think it's important? <laughs> I, I it's do. not a rhetorical question. Well, isn't it nice you have a newspaper to uh, that sits and watches these things? No, we're not going to turn this into a fucking plug. Subscribe. Actually, everybody knows, and this is a this is a good story. I get well. I have my own online account. So I pay for it online myself. Susan pays exorbitant fees to have it delivered <laughs> to the doorstep like it's goddamn Leave it to Beaver. However, because Again, I commentary. ride the bus, I love taking the paper on the bus and reading it on the bus. I love it. Sometimes when something's good, I'll take a photo of me reading it on the bus and send it to you. Yeah. Now, the news journal is not what it used to be. The business is not what it used to be. We don't have as many people working there, but... We still, you have a, a number of people working there that care about this public service that is involved in journalism, and they work very hard. And while we don't have the largesse as far as number of people, salaries, things like that we had before, you have a lot of really talented people working really hard, and a lot of them living far away from where they are from that yeah. are trying to do this service and are motivated by getting things right and being fair and uh, I think it's worth subscribing to I think well let me tell you a specific That's, I'm story done. I'm done <laughs> I think I'll tell you a specific story that will uh, that will prove this out on uh, Monday night when we were in Middletown uh, getting ready to protest at the at council meeting because of the float the parade float <clears throat> I hear this guy say hey Rob and he taps me on the shoulder it's Jerry with his camera Ready to yeah, 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 yeah. And so I introduced him to the people who were there, and it occurred to me as we were sort of chatting that he was the one who was covering the parade. He took the pictures that created this. Like otherwise, you know, would have you know, hundred people would have seen it. Might not, you know, who knows? But because he was there covering it and taking the photos, it turned into uh, it turned into an action. It turned into a political action. And you know, he's just Jerry. <laughs> I mean, I love that guy. I, th- I, th- I mean, it's no secret I love that guy. I mean, the, f- the fact of the matter is I wouldn't engage with – I mean, you're my friend. But I've told you before, I think your reporting's great. I think your writing's actually very good. Uh, and there are many people that I've sang the praises of. I think Carl Baker's great. I th- I, if I leave you out, you're just not good. <laughs> but, uh, you know, there, I completely agree with you. You know, I'm a huge Christina Jedra fan. Because she's she's a terror. She's a, she she's she does exactly what you're talking about. No, and everybody should subscribe to the news journal. I always defend the news journal. There are people who I give criticism to, but I will always defend the news journal because I engage with it. And I wouldn't even do that if it wasn't obviously extremely productive. Now I'm, you know, I'm a huge fan. Well, thank you for subscribing. Yeah, twice. I would like it noted that I subscribe. I have a. If anybody missed what I said. My wife pays for the paper, but I have my own personal online account, so we're, I, I will actually subscribe twice. I want some. I want some credit for that. Well, 
thank you for having me in. And there's a lot of things we didn't discuss. Um, you got inmate witnesses that are that are dying in custody um, and things like that. But we'll get to that oh, on the next episode. Yeah, let's get to that on the next episode. That's a good one. Um, well, listen, I am I am very glad you came in. We're gonna go uh, have a few beers now. What you guys don't know is I haven't released one of these yet, but we have two people that have been on the ones and twos tonight, and I think this content's going to start flying at you. And, you know, as I've said before, you probably will have to start paying for it at some point. It's going to be that good. It's, I mean, you're going to be begging for it. Wait till Al Massetti gets in here and starts talking to all you boomers, all you aging boomers. You've been dying to hear fucking Al Massetti back on the airwaves. Ah, fuck it. Let's get drunk. 